Thank you. Good news indeed. Great joy. That God is with us, his people. Holy Spirit, would you visit us here? Would you make yourself known to us, Lord? Thank you for the chance to talk about, to listen to your story. Lord, thank you that it's not about us and it is about us. Lord, that we can take refuge in a bigger story and bigger happenings. And there we can find our own identities. So God, how would you just enable me as I share from your word? And would you give us um, ears perked to listen to what you have for us today? In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome. My name's Teal Wojcicki. I'm married to Jeff. This is the Wojcicki show this morning. Um, I am not on staff at Campus House. I, Jeff and I got married in September, and I was doing student ministry elsewhere, actually, on the East Coast um, for the last five years. And so I love college students, and I know some of you, um, and hope to know more of you. Um, yeah, I think college is such a cool time. It's such a season of formation. Um, it's the season where you're processing what's come before, family, for the first time you're sort of out of your house and can think differently about the environment that you grew up in, um, but you're also kind of becoming who you're going to be as an adult, and I think there's, uh, it's, it's a neat opportunity to really um, press into identity questions and, and really partner with God and partner with your professors and partner with your friends in, in asking questions about who you're going to be. And who you are. So um, that's, that's also rather angst-ridden, is it not? Right? It, it is full of challenge in its own way. I think um, identity questions are um, heady and weighty often, and sometimes what we need is um, a bit of a, a break from sort of all of our internal introspection um, and to be drawn out. I was, when I was a kid, we had like story time at our local library. Yes, is this a thing? I'm guessing that's fairly universal. And I loved it because I'm nerdy like that, but also because like who doesn't love a story? Who doesn't love story time? I still love story time. Most of us, we, we now call story time like watching Netflix, right? But it's the same thing. We're gathering around a narrative and, and both sort of escaping or um, being drawn into a different world. Um, a confession, I had never seen any Star Wars movies until this one. And uh, I know. And then, yeah, it's bad. We can talk about it later. But, um, but the, the being drawn into an alternative world and narrative is such an exciting and attractive um, way to be caught up in uh, some, a bigger story. And, and we are formed and shaped by stories. And so I, I want us to sort of be drawn into the, the Christmas narrative, not as a, primarily as a point of application to your own life. 
Often and rightly, sermons have points of application, right? Um, I teach and then I say, hey, go away with this. Think about this. What is God doing? We're not going to apply this today. We're just going to listen and be drawn in with the assumption that we are formed by stories and that it can be a deep and profound relief to be drawn into a story that's bigger than our own lives. And a story that I am obviously going to suggest is, uh, will change our lives, but it's not your job today. Let's just listen. So, Scripture starts um, with, I, I think the Scripture is one long narrative. Um, it's got a ton of points, uh, but we're sort of making that assumption. We're going to jump into what is actually in the middle of, of your Bible in a, a passage that often gets read around Christmas time. And, but we often don't read it in the context. It's Isaiah 7. We are going to be jumping around a lot of text today, so feel free to watch the screen or if you want to turn in your paper paper Bible, but no pressure or on your phone. So Isaiah is towards the end. So let's back up. New Testament. There's 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning, the events that start the New Testament, okay? Shortly before that 400-year period, Israel is exiled. So Israel has been split at this point into two nations, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is just two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, but they get to stay, they stay in Jerusalem. They're sort of the, they, they claim the Davidic king. They're, that's sort of like the, they're the traditionalists. Like we're holding fast to the truth here. We're, you know, it's, there's just two of us over here doing our thing. Northern kingdom, other 10 tribes, their capital becomes Samaria. So at this point, um, in the book of Isaiah, we've got a problem. The southern kingdom, which is ruled by King Ahaz, good, good traditionalists, right? King Ahaz is, a, is about, he's, they start hearing rumors like three nations, including Israel, like including their old family members, are going to attack them. And Ahaz starts freaking out, like, oh my goodness, we are about to get blown out of the water by these three nations who are like, forming an alliance in order to come after us. And God tells Isaiah, hey, Isaiah, take your son, go meet King Ahaz and say this to him. Um, be quiet, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. And Ahaz is like, well, I'm, I'm sure this is me, but he's, he's thinking, okay. Like, we are about to get blown out of the water. I'm the king, I'm responsible, this is a problem. And he says, hey, hang on. Isaiah says, King Ahaz, God is going to deliver you. But you might not believe this, so, so ask him for a sign, right? You want a tangible sense that. And Ahaz, in a cop-out, says, I don't need a sign. I, you know, like, he's like, he says, I will not put the Lord to the test, which sounds very spiritual and actually is not. And, and Isaiah says, Hear then, O house of David, right, Davidic king, he's talking to Ahaz, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary God also? And, and what he's saying is, God told you to ask for a sign. This isn't you testing him. This is you kind of wiggling your way out of faith. And so Isaiah says, don't worry about it. Here's, I'll tell you what the sign's going to be. A virgin will conceive and bear a son 
and shall call his name Emmanuel. So often, prophetic words in the Old Testament have a, a immediate fulfillment and a future fulfillment. So it's confusing, but this can both be about right then, like there was a virgin or a young woman who had a baby and named that baby Emmanuel. It's very likely actually that, that she wasn't a virgin, that she was in fact Isaiah's wife and that she had uh, a son and named him God with us, right? And that doesn't sound like a sign, does it? It sounds like somebody had a baby and gave him a particular name. And yet the sign is as the child grows, and this is not um, on the screen, but he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So as the child matures, the child himself will be a sign that God's favor is on the land. So it's, it's less about the, the conceiving of the child and more about the, this, this kind of person in your midst is going to be a symbol of God's ongoing faithfulness to you. So God's not, this is not a new idea that the people of God are waiting for a baby or waiting for offspring. It's actually, God's promise comes to Abraham long before this, right? If we can sort of backpedal a bit. God's promise comes to Abraham, and if you're familiar with the story, the people of Israel are founded underneath a promise that necessitates a baby. So Genesis 12, we find this random guy, or so he thinks, and God visits him and says, hey, you, you, Abraham, I'm going to rename you. I'm going to give you a promise. I'm going to make you a people. And look up at the stars. And as many as you can see, those are, that's how many people you're going to, are going to come from you. And that nation, I'm going to bless it. It's this promise of God's blessing on a people. And Abraham's like, that's great, God. Awesome. But like, no kid, right? We are so without children. It's not even funny and dried up. And I love Paul in Romans says, um, Abraham's as good as dead and Sarah, so is Sarah, by the way, right? It's just like not even nice, honestly. And, and there's a sense of, oh my goodness, this is going to this is going to require a supernatural work because the biological processes are not there to conceive this child. And so God's promise hinges on a baby. Romans, in Romans 4, Paul says, Abraham doesn't weaken in faith even as he considers his own body, which is as good as dead. And so you think, Okay, we're waiting for this. And finally, God gives to Sarah, Abraham's wife, a baby. And they have Isaac, right? And it's, it's not without drama involved. And, and yet, here is this promised baby. And we think, shoo, like God's promise. But like, and it, we are like on the edge there. God, what are you going to do? And then he does this miraculous work. And then the next generation, Isaac marries Rebecca. It turns out Rebecca is also barren. Can you move us along, Ralph? And so these are the generations of Isaac 
Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, his prayer and Rebekah conceives. And then Rebekah and Isaac have twin boys, right? Jacob and Esau, and again, drama. The patriarchs are not exactly a study in morality. Um, and Jacob marries two wives through some trickiness of his father-in-law, Leah, who he didn't actually ask for, and then Leah's sister, Rachel, who he wanted and pined for, right? Go back, sorry. <laughs> and, uh, and, but Rachel, Jacob's favored wife, right, the, the wife he loved, um, she, when Rachel saw that she bore no children, she envied her sister because Leah's having babies. Um, she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So Rachel is bearing the devastation of barrenness and she's full of lack, which is a thing, right? Perhaps you've been there. Why is barrenness so devastating? We now call barrenness infertility. So perhaps you, um, I think most of you are in college, but, but either have family members or friends who have experienced this or are experiencing this. Maybe your parents, maybe that's part of um, your, the story of your family. And we now call it infertility. And I think partly because barren is such a stark word. It sort of smacks you in the face. It sounds like a desert. It sounds like uh, the landscape of your body is a desert. <laughs> Infertility sounds a little more modern. And in some ways, it is fitting because infertility now captures the lack of ability to parent a biological child, but there's less cultural stigma attached. So this is a patriarchal society where truly a woman's worth was very tied to her ability to bear children and even more so to bear sons, right? And so this is, it's hard for us to imagine. It would be like mixing the categories of um, physical beauty and health, um, social uh, popularity and acceptance, and a job. Like if all of those areas in your life got devastated at once, that, that's kind of what it would be like for a woman to be barren in this culture. So it's not simply kind of this sectioned off area, but it, it truly had to do with her value to her husband and her family, her societal value. And really, like that was her job. It's like you're not doing your job. Very difficult for us to imagine Currently, when women wrestle with infertility, 80% of couples now who wrestle with infertility do so with um, a diagnosis that is, un it's, it's an actual diagnosis called unexplained infertility. That even now, even now with all of our medical advances, it is abundantly apparent to people who are trying to have children and can't that, that conceiving a child is both natural in that 
it seems like this is what your body should be able to do when you do all the things conducive to bearing a child. And, and yet it's utterly out of your control, that there's a supernatural element to it. So it's both profoundly natural and profoundly supernatural. So barrenness touches on two dynamics, I think, that are important for us to talk about. The first is that idea of personal shame. I um, study in grad school. I went to seminary, and we, I took a preaching class, and my first sermon in preaching class was on barren women, actually. Um, and this is not my, the only thing I talk about. I, I haven't talked about it since. But um, I sort of pop up and, like, God loves a barren woman. And when we see barren women in the Bible, like, God's about to do something crazy and awesome. So I talked about Hannah and 1 Samuel, and I talked about the patriarch's wives. And then I talked about Mary as sort of the ultimate barren woman because she hadn't even had sex. I mean, good grief. Does it get more barren than that? Right? And... And it was like a, a I mean, I, I thought it was clever and, and impressive. And 10 years later, I think, I know better. I think there's some personal devastation in these words. Yes, God does something, but there's also a story and women who cried every month and found their identity so wrapped up in the shame of not being able to fulfill their desires and the desires of their family and their culture. And, and we will see even at some, it, it would not have been surprising had they tied that to God's favor in their life. And so, wow, just a spotlight on um, an ex- yeah, an exposure of, of personal shame. Leah, the other wife of Jacob, is interesting in this way. Um, her story is that she is the undesirable wife. It says she had weak eyes, whatever that means. But it, it means that Jacob's eyes were not excited about seeing Leah. And he um, did not find her as desirable as she, and it was devastating to her. And part of the way we know that is that although she could have sons, she uh-huh. names her sons, she gives them some interesting names. Her first son, his name is Reuben, and when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, let's look at scripture, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, which literally means, see a son. I was telling Jeff this yesterday. He goes, we should name our first kid, look, a boy, or dang, a daughter. (laughs) Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Whoa. Could it be any more obvious that this was her hope for acceptance by her husband? She conceives again. Apparently that doesn't work. And bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard me that I am hated, he has given me this son also. Oh, no, I'm losing my mic. And she called his name Simeon, which means, let me tell you in a second, heard. And then she conceives and bears another son, and she names him Levi, um, which means attached, meaning hopefully this time my husband will be attached to me. Three boys, 
three sons, everything supposedly hoped for in that culture, and yet Leah's also got a profound lack. Uh, One of my favorite, I was single for a long time, so Jeff and I just got married, and I'm 33, and um, one of my favorite um, people who writes on the subject of singleness, um, and I found her profoundly encouraging during a long season of really asking the Lord, like, is this something you have for me, and what are you doing? Uh, wrote an article on how, how singleness prepared her for infertility, so now married. But, and she talks about the gift of lack, and I love that language, that the gift of lack is, lack is about, it's a, a negative term, meaning it names an absence. And that when we have absences that are profoundly and deeply felt in our lives, that there is that sacred space to God. That truly creating that kind of space, sometimes as we pray into and lean into those places of lack, which, don't get me wrong, are also places where bitterness and frustration can grow, absolutely, and, and, and usually mixed in there. I mean, it is, a, it, is, it is a space filled with all kinds of things. But it is sacred space if we allow God to get in there. And whether he fills it with a husband or a wife or a baby, he mostly desires to fill it with himself. And Leah actually experiences this. And so something happens after Levi, and she has another son. And, and after Levi, she has a son, and she names him Judah. And Judah means praise. That whatever happens to Leah, God so forms her in, during her season of lack that she ends with praise. And so I, I love that, and I think that, that it just points to God's desire for us to experience laughter lack as a gift. But one of the things that can be unhelpful about the gift of lack is not recognizing the lack to begin with. In fact, that hinders us from recognizing it as a gift. One of the things I've noticed as I have ministered to and talked to and sat with so many hundreds of college students over the last years is that what the biggest barrier to recognizing the gift is naming the problem. And those places of grief, right, to, to put a name to a desire that's unmet, uh, a difficult family situation, uh, less than ideal something, right, a, a disappointment that we weren't born more attractive or more talented, that we didn't get into a different school, that our parents didn't support us in a particular way, that that our financial situation is so hard, that our lack of um, affirmation, right? To, to not name the lack is to miss the gift. So if we give up the points of tension in God's story, we end up with the same thing. So while there is personal shame involved here, there's also questions of God's faithfulness. Um, So, Genesis 3. We're, we're, we're kind of going backwards, right? Starting in Isaiah and moving towards Genesis. You guys know the story. But 
Essentially, Adam and Eve are gifted with a place in the garden, an intimate relationship with God. And God comes to them and says, here's your place, here's your blessing, here's your relationship. I want you to partner with me and be co-creators. And then Eve is confronted with um, the deceiver and opposer of God, right, in the serpent. And she disbelieves the commandment she has received, right? So that they've gotten the anything, all of this is yours, we're going to partner together. And she hears the serpent's questioning, and she's like, hmm, you might be right, and God might be withholding, and actually, I, that whole knowledge thing sounds pretty interesting to me, and die, I don't know, right? And, and then we, of course, know the end of that story. And Eve transgresses God's commandment, and there's a pronouncement um, by God of curse. And, and I want us to note that he, the curse language towards the serpent, right? Um, and we know this, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And this is a pretty famous um, kind of part of that curse. I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking about the serpent, right? Talking about the opposer. And between your seed, your scripture, that it literally means seed. It often gets translated offspring. Same idea though, children, right? Um, Your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise or crush his heel. And so there's this sense of in this place of creation where life and death is on offer, the the choice of death has led, yes, to a curse, yes, to a problem, yes, actually, to a cosmic coup in which the, the power given to Adam and Eve to rule and reign with God as co-creators in his image then becomes Satan is, is reigning. Actually, the, the, in Scripture, the name most often given to Satan is the prince of this world or the ruler of this world, right? This is a cosmic coup. It's not just like, oh, isn't that interesting, like a, a snake, like, talked, and then, and now he's like, and now we all hate snakes right? He's like, no, no, no. What's happening here is a cosmic coup that is dependent on, of all things, seed, offspring, children. Not a warrior, right? I mean, maybe, but, but all we get is um, the biological processes of a man and woman creating life become the place of expectation, the place of hope. So every generation waits, right? Every generation waits. And, and what are they waiting for? They're waiting for shalom, for flourishing, for, for the in original intention of creation to be realized and to return its original purposes. And we don't have a lot of time for this, but I do want you to note that as Abram... Abraham, and then Isaac, and Jacob, and as each of that sort of, those promises, as we wait for the offspring in those instances, and it's kind of like God's promises are this 
glass on the edge of a table that feels like it's always threatening to kind of fall off and break, and the whole mission is going to go off course, actually does become the fulfillment of a promise, a nation. And that nation actually gets the, a very similar offer to Eve, a choice. And in the law, right, in the God telling Israel how to relate to them and Israel saying back to God, okay, we can do that, there is an exchange of a very similar invitation to Adam and Eve, life and death, blessing and curse. And if you look at Deuteronomy 30, um, and I would actually encourage you to do that on your own time, there are so many echoes of the creation story. So Deuteronomy is a, sum, is a summary of the law. Um, it's like a sermon. It's, um, and it ends with this invitation of, um, I call heaven and earth, sounds like creation, to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your seed, interesting, may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land, which sounds like Eden, right? And really, the promised land is meant to kind of have echoes of Eden that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Here's a, here's a new chapter in the story, a redo. When I was a kid, we always played like baseball in the backyard with a metal bat and a tennis ball, which is super fun, and you can get it really far. I am not very athletic. I'm one of four kids. My younger brother, who's where the two middles, is an amazing athlete. It's like all of the athletic genes got like, from the four of us, got sort of funneled into him. And so we, he was always rallying us for these games in our neighborhood. There are tons of kids around. And so we would go out there, and I would be up to bat. And I was like, not good. I'm sorry to say I played softball for like eight years, and every year my parents would be like, again? And I would be like, yeah. And they were like, okay. Um, but... I was awful, and because it was neighborhood kids, I would always be like, if I missed the ball, I would claim that it was a foul tip. I'd be like, foul tip, foul tip. I didn't strike out, foul tip. And it would let me stay up there longer, and it felt like a redo, right? And so this is sort of like the, the redo. It's the foul tip move, right, that, that Israel gets to try again, where Adam failed, where Eve failed, Israel gets to try again. And, and they get to try again to redeem the original intention. I love Narnia, the Narnia series. And one of the things I always found fascinating is when we talk about Adam and Eve, we think of Genesis 3 so often. But in Narnia, the, the language sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, is a profound distinction. It's an honor. It's a mantle to live up under of honor. That, that Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 3, that the calling on humanity doesn't start with Genesis 3. Andy Crouch, who wrote a wonderful book on power that I would recommend to anyone called Playing God, talks about how in, in um, we so often start with Genesis 3 and end with judge, the judgment piece of Revelation, right? So Revelation 20. And the scripture goes from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, from creation to new creation. He says, if we start with Genesis 3 and end with Revelation 20, 
It's not good news. And in fact, it's no news at all. It is not surprising to us that, we, that there's sin and mess in the world and that it all needs to come out in the wash somehow. There has to be judgment. But cre- good creation and coming new creation, that is good news. It is such good news. So Mary gets good news. Great joy, right? That she, the ultimate barren woman, that, she, that her offspring are going to be the fulfillment of God's promise. One seed, which Paul picks up on and says it actually all comes down to that one baby. And she receives that. And rather than doubting God, she believes him. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. She receives the good news and responds accordingly. The one I was exposed a few months ago to a painting. Ralph, can you bring that up? Um, done by some sisters in a monastery, and I, I love it. I've been just meditating on it, and in fact, um, was at a, a women's Bible study in the area the other day, and they used this painting for us to meditate on. Um, so I think it's in the air that Mary, this connection that has historically. Um, been seen by the church between Eve and Mary. There's a lot to notice here. Certainly the serpent, right? Christ in Mary crushing the head of the serpent, the seed in Mary. But also the shame of Eve and the hope of Mary, right? The hope of Jesus. I, I want to read to you an essay um, from an essay of a guy who was the dean of the chapel at, at Duke um, talking about this idea of receiving. That truly Mary receives, but unlike Israel being called to action, right, in the law that we really are called to reception in Jesus. Rabbi Michael Goldberg in his book, Jews and Christians, says that as a Jew, he is impressed in reading Matthew's account of the nativity by how utterly passive the actors are. As a Jew, he answers to the story of the Exodus, a story of how God liberated the chosen people through the enlistment and prodding of people like Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, but the Christian story implies that God want, what God wants to do for us is so strange, so beyond the bounds of human effort and striving, that God must resort to an utterly unnatural, supernatural means. It tells of an unimaginable gift from a stranger, a God whom we hardly even knew. This strange story tells us how to be receivers. The first word of the church, a people born out of so odd a nativity, is that we are receivers before we are givers. Discipleship teaches us the art of seeing our lives as gifts. That's tough because I'd rather see myself as a giver. I want power to stand on my own, take charge, set things to rights, 
perhaps to help those who have nothing. I don't like picturing myself as dependent, needy, empty-handed. This is often the way God loves us, with gifts we thought we didn't need, which transform us into people we don't necessarily want to be. With our advanced degrees, armies, government programs, material comforts, and self-fulfillment techniques, we assume that religion is about giving a little of our power in order to confirm to ourselves that we are indeed as self-sufficient as we claim. Then this stranger comes to us, blesses us with a gift, and calls us to see ourselves as we are, empty-handed recipients of a gracious God who, rather than leave us to our own devices, gave us a baby. God, thank you. Thank you for this gift of a baby in Jesus. Thank you for the way that you gave it. Denies our involvement, denies our ability to participate in a helpful way. Lord, thank you for Mary. Thank you for those who received well from you, who received good news in that story for the shepherds, for the wise men. Lord, we want to be good receivers from you. Thank you for the chance to take communion, to receive from you, to look ahead to what the ultimate gift of your coming would look like you giving fully of yourself to us. So we receive together in great joy and with much thanksgiving.